The Apostle Paul records some 43 prayers in the New Testament. Do you know how many of those prayers were for the circumstances of those he prayed for? None. 43 prayers, and none of them were prayers that God would change the circumstances of anyone that he prayed for. So now let's look briefly at the substance of what she comes to Jesus with, the substance of her prevailing intercessory prayer. First of all, her prayer was very bold and very direct, wasn't it? She didn't come to Jesus beating around the bush. She didn't come to Jesus all sort of hemming and hawing. She didn't come to Jesus and, and sort of want to engage him with uh, this other question over here and this other thing and sort of maybe just get, eventually get around. You know what? I, I've got this daughter at home. And now that we kind of got to know each other a little bit, let me sort of tell you about her. She doesn't do that at all. She comes very bold, very direct. She's like the opposite of Abraham. Remember Abraham in Genesis 23? Remember that story of Abraham when Sarah dies? And Abraham, who was the heir of the promised land, who owned no land at all, has to actually buy some land to bury his wife in. And so he comes to the Hittites there in Genesis 23. And remember this is whole chapter of back and forth, him and hawing in this this cult, that was the culture of the day, this Eastern culture of that day. That, that was how things were done. Abraham comes to the Hittites and he says, I need some land. I need a field and a cave to bury my wife in. And the Hittites respond to say, oh, we'll give you the field. Just take it. For, but we're neighbors. Between neighbors, what's one field? Take the field and bury your dead. And Abraham says, no, no, no. I won't do that. I'll pay for the field. No, no, no. We won't take your money. We want, what, what is this between neighbors? Just take the field that you want and bury your dead there. No, no, no. I must. And it goes back and forth numerous times. And eventually the Hittites say, or Abraham keeps saying, just name your price, name your price. Eventually the Hittites say, what's a field that's worth 400 shekels between friends? And that was the price. That was the naming of the price because that's how things were done in that culture. You just, Two people just sat down and that's how negotiations went. This woman is the opposite of that. She comes to Jesus, Jesus, right away, right off, the, right off the bat. Nobody standing around there had any doubt what the woman wanted from Jesus. Her daughter was possessed of demons and she comes to him directly and boldly right up front with this request. Secondly, her prayer, of course, was persistent. If anything, her prayer was persistent. She wouldn't be turned away. Now, when Jesus speaks to us of effective, prevailing prayer, I wonder if we can recognize what the characteristic of prevailing prayer that Jesus most consistently emphasizes. Anybody know? What aspect of prayer does Jesus seem to want to emphasize most frequently? The aspect of prayer that Jesus seems to return to in desiring to emphasize that aspect is the aspect of persistence. That seems to be what Jesus wants to communicate most effectively about prayer is the aspect of persistent prayer. He tells the parable of the man who has some friends that show up late at night and he's got to give them a place to stay, but he doesn't have enough bread for them. So he goes to his friend, knocks on the door and, and says, you know, can you get up and give me some bread? I've got some, some people that came over late and I don't have enough bread for them. 
And the guy says, we're already in bed. Me and my daughters and my family were already in the bed. Go away and come back again later. But he won't. He keeps on knocking and knocking. And Jesus finally says, because of his persistence, he finally gets out of bed, opens the door and gives him the bread. Or the other parable that Jesus tells about the wicked judge. The wicked judge who there's this widow who's been treated unjustly. She comes before the wicked judge saying, give me justice, give me justice. He won't hear her. He won't give her justice, but she keeps on coming and coming. Finally, the judge says, this woman won't leave me alone. I'm going to give her justice just so she won't keep coming back. Jesus tells both of those parables to teach the lesson of persistence in prayer. Now, here's the important thing to see about both of those parables. Jesus does not tell those parables for us to compare them to God. Jesus isn't comparing the friend who won't get out of bed to God. He's not comparing the unjust judge to God. Instead, he's contrasting. And he makes that plain. He goes on to say, if this unjust judge will eventually give her justice, how much more will your father speedily give you justice? Or if this friend didn't want to get up out of bed to help you, but he eventually does because you keep knocking, how much more will your father come to your aid? All right, so his point there is to contrast the father, not to say that God's like that. You just got to keep on asking and asking and asking. His, his point is to contrast it. But nevertheless, he also wants to emphasize the necessity of persistence in prayer. And so this is, seems important to our Lord that those who would pray would, would pray in a persistent manner. And this woman is anything if not, is nothing if not persistent. So seeing that, let's now, after having talked for a little bit about how she comes to Jesus, the way that she comes to Jesus, how this manner of coming to Jesus should be seen as an example for us. We've seen the how. Let's think for just a minute about the, the what. Because we've talked about how we come to God and how this woman shows us to come to, to God on behalf of others. But we haven't yet talked about what we come to God on behalf of others for. And that's what I want to spend the remainder of our time just thinking through what the Scriptures teach us about the needs that we take to the Father on behalf of others. So first of all, just recognize that this sounds really basic, really simple. And probably most of us in the room will say, okay, yeah, we understand that. But the first thing still needs to be said. The first thing is this, to make sure that we are bringing others to the Lord in prayer. And doesn't that sound basic and simple? Yeah, we all know that. But also, don't we all need to hear that as well? Don't we all need to hear that not only are we expected to take one another to the Lord in prayer, but we are even told that we sin against the Lord when we don't. Remember the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and verse 23, when Samuel says, Far be it from me, far be it from me, that I would sin against the Lord by lying to you. That's not what he says. Far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord by blaspheming His name. He says, far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, by failing to pray for you. Samuel says to us quite plainly, I sin against the Lord 
when I fail to pray for God's people. And brothers and sisters, that's a powerful lesson that we must take into today. That we sin against the Lord by failing to take one another to the Lord in prayer. If you look around the room and you see all the faces in the room, all the faces in the room that particularly are covenant members of the the Disciples Fellowship, you should see faces that you regularly take to God in prayer. That's what you should see in the room. Not just the loved ones that are your biological family or not just your close loved ones or not even those who are the closest of your friends, but all of those who are the body should be the object of regular prayers that you take before the Lord. In fact, this is one of the things that we covenant together with with one another in our church covenant. Let me read it to us once again. We will not, I'm sorry, we will um, endeavor to bring up such as may be at any time under our care, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So all of us have covenanted together to take one another to the Lord in prayer. And as we take one another to the Lord in prayer, this is our guideline. Not just words to say, oh Lord, I just want to bring to you the needs of, uh, of this brother, of this sister. I just want to bring you to you the needs. Like this woman came to Jesus with a heart that was burdened, with a heart that was heavy, with an identification so close that she could say, Lord, have mercy on me. That's how we are to take one another before the Lord. Some of you in the room have had the experience of having me say to you, Brother or sister, I've seen this. I've noticed this. I've noticed this that I I seem to see is going on. And I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And usually the response that I get from that sort of thing is, wow, it's so nice to, to know that we have a pastor that prays for us. Listen, you should have every member of the body praying for you in exactly the same way as you pray for them as you take these needs before the Lord, this mandate of intercessory prayer in which we are told not only can you take these requests to the Lord's to the Lord, but you must take these requests to the Lord. So we see that. We see that it's helpful just to be told once again, yes, we must be praying for others in the body, for one another, for loved ones. We must be taking them before the Lord. But what do we ask? What do we take to the Lord when we pray for others, be it others in the body or just others in our life? What do we tend to pray for? What are those requests that we tend to take to the Lord? Isn't it true that just like our prayers for ourselves, isn't it true that the bulk of our prayers for others tend to be consumed with small prayers? Isn't that true? Prayers that are requests for the external, for the outward, 
for the surgery that's coming up, for the job that someone may be looking for, for the difficulty in this job situation, or for the difficulty in this home situation, for, or for this loved one that's in the hospital, or these tests that are coming up, or this or that, or whatever it may be, or, or safe travels from here to there. Doesn't that seem, tend to consume our prayers for one another? I know it consumes the requests that are lifted up. Like, for example, at the conclusion of this service, as we say, pray for this brother, pray for this sister in this way, and this thing's going on. Doesn't that tend to consume us? Is these outward sort of external things. Now, we are commanded in Scripture to pray for all those things, right? For circumstances, for external circumstances. Jesus tells us, He's, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus teaches us to pray for external things, for external needs. But when we think about the example of praying for others that the Scripture gives to us, again, there is no more prolific example than the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul records some 43 prayers in the New Testament. Do you know how many of those prayers were for the circumstances of those he prayed for? None. 43 prayers, numerous, numerous sentences of prayer, and none of them were prayers that God would change the circumstances of anyone that he prayed for. With one small possible exception, Paul prayed on several occasions that God would grant that he would be able to go to a certain church and strengthen their faith by being with them. If you want to consider that a change in circumstances, that might be an exception. I don't really think that's an exception. I still think that was still a spiritual prayer. So Paul prayed prolifically for the church and his prayers were consumed with requests, none of which were requests for circumstances. Now, if Paul were here today, he would be the first one to say to us, well, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to pray for circumstances. Because it was Paul himself who would say in the letter to the Philippians that in all things, by prayer and supplication, lift all these things up to God and the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it's Paul himself who said pray in all things. It's also Paul who would say at the end of that letter to the Philippians that I know that my God will will meet all your needs according to His riches and grace in Christ Jesus. And the meeting of the needs that he confesses there, we shouldn't take that to mean that Paul only means the meeting of spiritual needs. Because the entire letter of Philippians was a letter that was occasioned by the Philippians meeting his circumstantial needs. So we shouldn't say that when he says, my God will meet all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's not saying just your spiritual needs. So Paul himself would say, of course we're to, sp- to pray for external circumstances. We are right to take that before God. However, the weight, the weight of the examples of prayers that were given gives clear weight to the requests that are not circumstantial, that are not exterior, that are not outward, that are spiritual that are not requests for the natural man, but requests for the spiritual man. So why is it that we tend to be so consumed with praying for externals? Why do you think that is? I think there's at least two reasons why 
requests for external circumstances tend to dominate our prayers, particularly our prayers for other people. I think the first reason that external circumstances tend to dominate is because, well, quite frankly, that's the easiest prayer to pray. Isn't it far easier to pray that God would give traveling mercies to someone traveling from A to B? Isn't that far easier to pray? Isn't it far easier to pray for successful surgery or for a healing or for the return of health? Isn't that far easier to pray than to pray for a deep spiritual matter? Praying for a spiritual matter is spiritual work that can only be done by the power of the Spirit. And nothing the Spirit does in you is effortless on your part. Did you, get, did you catch that? When the Spirit, once you're converted, once conversion has come to you, nothing the Spirit does in you is effortless on your part. And so therefore, to wrestle with God with requests that aren't exterior and circumstantial, that is hard spiritual work. You know, even people who hate God can wish that other people have safe travels. Even people who hate God can wish that people have successful surgeries. That's not hard. Even people that don't know God can do that. You know, I recently read a book by uh, Tim Keller called Prayer. In that book, he cites a couple of statistics that might be alarming to you. He says that 43% of atheists confess to praying. 43% of atheists say that they pray occasionally. I find that stunning that they pray. Who do you pray to? What are you praying for? Who do you think is hearing you if you're an atheist? But nevertheless, 43% of people who believe there is no God will still say that they pray. They can still pray for a successful surgery. And that presents no theological problem for them whatsoever. They can still pray that you would be healed from that broken bone. So you see, those types of prayers, while they are necessary, while God expects them, while they are required for your godliness as you pray for others, if you are to pray for others in spiritual, in spiritual manners while neglecting the external circumstances, then you'd be just like James who says, you know, what good is it, what good is it when somebody comes and, and they're in desperate need and you say, oh, go and be filled and be warmed and then you don't meet their need? That's the same thing to say, well, I'll pray for your spiritual needs only, but I'll ignore your circumstantial needs. No, we don't do that either. But that is to say that wrestling with God over spiritual concerns, wrestling with God with the hard-heartedness of a loved one, wrestling with God over the, the spiritual frustration that you sense a brother or sister is experiencing, wrestling with God over, over perhaps the doubts that you sense that a brother is having, those are far more difficult prayers to pray. And so I think that that's why external circumstances tend to dominate our prayers because they're easier. Secondly, I think they dominate because the answers to those prayers are much more readily seen. When you pray for traveling mercies, well, you can see God answer that prayer in an hour or two, can't you? When you pray that God would grant a successful surgery or a good doctor's report, you can see the answer for that pretty soon. But when you pray that a sister or a brother would be empowered by the Spirit, 
to submit their lives to the Lord more fully, to kill this sin in their life, to be made more like Christ. Those are prayers that take years and decades and lifetimes to ever realize the answer for them. And prayers that are answered in the long term are harder to consistently pray than prayers that are answered in the short term, aren't they? So I think that's why our prayers often are dominated by the circumstantial.